0: Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 42. Welcome to the year of 2013, and we look forward to another exciting year. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman.
1: Hello, Christina, and how are you?
0: Happy New Year.
1: Happy New Year. You know, I was I was uh I was wondering when uh you celebrate this new year, but then in about two months, you're going to sell- we're all going to celebrate another new year that's right so uh how does that work for you?
0: Oh, Just it's fantastic. more
1: celebrations or do you have different things that mean different things
0: oh uh, different things that mean different things you know this celebration is is like I, I don't know the The January 1st celebration is uh, neither here nor there for me. It's the Christmas time that, you know, we celebrate a little bit of the Portuguese style with the Portuguese food. You know, that's a little piece of my background. And, you know, everything on the table represents the manger, even though, you know, as I say, I'm not uh, immersed in Catholicism anymore. But, you know, that, that, that tradition is always very lovely to keep up and pass on. And then, you know, New Year's is just, uh, it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice. I think when I was younger, I would celebrate like everyone else because I think everyone else was doing it. <laughs> okay. But, um, reaching, you know, in the past 15 years or so, just getting in touch with my, uh, Chinese roots and beginning to celebrate Chinese New Year, which is the lunar New Year, uh, that is celebrated many cultures and not just in Asia. It's, uh, it means a lot more. It's more significant to me, and uh, it's almost like um, you know the the holidays are over here in the states. It's Thanksgiving, and then the Christmas season, and then it's like being able to take another breath before you actually dive into another three day celebration of wonderful food and friends, and you know it's not the gift giving or anything like that, but it's it's about sharing and it's about really taking the time to for that breath to really know how you want to set your year up. You, know, you have time to clean up. You have time to, you know, I guess it's like, like what um, a lot of people would consider spring cleaning. It's a mm-hmm. little bit like that.
1: That's that's somewhat in the tr- Chinese tradition also, this, the cleaning up.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: For me, for me, New Year's is basically saying summer's on the way. Uh-huh. That's why I like that. Uh, Well, Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I'll be your uh, medical guide along with uh, Christina as we travel each week through the healthcare galaxy uh, searching for ways towards optimal health. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm very excited to start our new season. This is great. And you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's a little irony in the uh, way we're going to do this today in that in in life, Uh, the last doctor that sees people is usually the pathologist when they have a life at the end of their life. uh, The pathologist is the last person to see a person. Hmm. And so I thought it might be interesting to change that whole concept around and have for our first uh, show of this year, uh, a pathologist. And uh, we're going to get into this because this is something uh, most people never meet with a pathologist. Uh, They usually see their private care doctor, their internist, or a surgeon, or something like that. Almost never seeing the pathologist. So Mm -hmm. today, I wanted to bring along uh, my great friend and colleague of many years, uh, who is a pathologist, Dr. Michael Richardson. Greetings, Michael, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. Well, thank you. I feel very honored to be here. We are honored to have you. Uh, Let me... uh, say that what I usually do as the medical guide uh, for our viewing audience is to give them an idea of the path we're going to be on. And especially, it's interesting today because choosing a path with a pathologist makes me wonder if we're going to be studying about paths with you. <laughs> <laughs> the final path? <clears throat> no, I don't know. there's a lot of that. misconceptions. Maybe we can clear up a few things. That'd be great. So I'm going to Start with, we want to get to know you a little bit and what got you into uh, medicine and healing and why you chose uh, this specialty. And then we want to talk a little bit and introduce people to what a pathologist does. I know that people have some ideas, but we'll talk a little more. And then I want to try and uh, use your uh, brilliance and your wisdom and your observation (laughs) skills to... See if there's anything about what you do that will help us, the living, to maybe improve ourselves. Does that sound all right to you? Sure sounds good to me. Let's, <laughs> let's see if let's, I can confuse things here for you. Excellent. Well, <laughs> if you confuse them, I know Christina will uh, clear us all up on that.
0: <laughs> no, I just confuse everyone even more with my questions.
2: <laughs> no, our our job is to try to uh, try to deconfuse, try to...
1: Try to bring some rationality in the whole thing for you guys. You are you are the the pillar of rationality. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Become irrational is going to just it's going to make him look really embarrassing, isn't it?
1: Uh, this is already a pathological show. It is. We try our best. <laughs> so, Michael, what when did you decide you wanted to be a healer? Uh, what influenced you in that, how did you go about the process, and what was it like for you?
2: Well, actually, I think I got started when my mother bought me a microscope way back when. Like, gee, you know, must have been about eight. Uh, I got this little, uh, for Christmas, I got a little uh, microscope. It's actually a fairly uh, complex little microscope at the time. And uh, she showed me uh, what she's called bacteria. And I, I don't think they were bacteria now, but those uh, well, bacteria. <laughs> I was hooked. <laughs> I was
1: dead. <laughs> I knew I was going to be doing something
2: with a microscope.
1: That's really fascinating, actually, the way that happened. How old were you about at that time? About eight.
2: About eight. My mom was a PhD in home ec, but she was also a scientist. She uh, did a lot of work in, um, um, oh, oxygen consumption during housework of all things. I, you know, you wouldn't think a PhD, you wouldn't think they'd have PhDs in home ec, but uh, they do. And what a lot of her stuff was. She used to experiment on dogs and put them through all sorts of heavy work and see how much oxygen consumption they used. <laughs> Did she ever use you as a? As uh, no, she didn't. <laughs> you, you were the I placebo. Know. No, no, I wasn't a placebo. No, they. Uh, she, she had to. Uh, she had to use oxygen consumption and lung capacity. So some of these dogs ended up getting, uh, getting through, put through all sorts of uh, you know spirometry that I don't think they're real happy to do. But uh, she, she got it done. Wow. (laughs) Uh, Actually, she, but yeah, that, that was that. I I figured I was going to be doing something with a microscope. And uh, frankly, my pathologist, that's, that's their, that's their stock
1: and trade is Mm. microscopy. Yeah, it really is. So did you, did you uh, go right through medical school knowing all along you were going to be a pathologist or did you at least look at a few other things?
2: Yeah, I did a rotating internship uh, just to see if there was anything else I liked better. I didn't. (laughs) Yeah. The problem is a lot of that, you know, some, some of us are tend to be more people persons. Some of us tend to be a little bit more uh, data persons. I I found that I was much happier with data, data and images and, Oh, basically the rational and, um, and, uh, more concrete aspects of medicine. Things Hmm. are a little less variable.
1: Has, uh, and so when did you start your practice actually as a pathologist?
2: Well, I, you know, well, I suppose during the residency, you know, they have a, you know, generally pathologists, uh, traditionally they have a year of internship. That's, they, 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 you know, the American Board of Pathology encourages you to do at least a, a year of rotating, um, uh, rotating internship just so you can learn the basic clinical problems and the, you know, because you're going to be going into the laboratory after that and you'll you won't be uh, exposed to as many clinical problems, so they try to get you at least some clinical, uh, some clinical work up front. Then you do four years of anatomic and clinical pathology. We can go into how that's broken down. Yeah, go and, ahead a little bit. Well, well, anatomic pathology is microscopic work. In other words, we're the guy. You know, anything that's done um, in the laboratory with a microscope is what a pathologist does. And anatomic pathology would be cancer diagnoses, uh some autopsy work, although that's becoming um, you know uh less and less every year. Uh, and then the clinic and then the uh the aspects in the other parts portions of the laboratory like urinalysis, uh uh microbiology, they all have microscopic aspects to them, and that's really kind of where we shine. Mm-hmm. We're the we're the microscope guys.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Behind the scenes.
2: Yeah, pretty much. You know, it's uh Generally, if like say in a like say in hematology, you'll uh, you know machines will determine a lot of the parameters. But if they find abnormal cells, we're the ones that will tell them what they are. Hmm. Hematology is about blood, and it's 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 basically blood. It's uh it's like you know traditionally, clinical laboratories are broken down into several subsets. One of which is hematology, the blood microbiology is bacteria and antibiotics, serology is uh, uh the immune system. Um, clinical microscopy is your analysis Um, clinical chemistry is not the very little very little use of the microscope there that's more uh, determination of the chemical components of serum like you know electrolytes uh, enzymes things like that we're responsible for all of the for the accuracy of those things but that's these days uh, that's becoming very much a secondary aspect of what we do didn't used to be but uh, now it's becoming less and less and we, we do a lot more microscopy relative to, you know, what we used to do in the clinical labs. Is that because the
1: technology is so much better?
2: Yeah, well, that is. It's true. It's uh, the, the technology become much, much better. Uh, and uh, clinical doctors just don't use pathologists anymore. And it's unfortunate. I think we could give them a lot of information. Uh, they're just not trained to do it. They uh, They don't want to use
1: pathologists anymore.
2: I think they're a little threatened. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's because you guys know so much. Well, at least we think we do.
2: Well, the problem is, I think a lot of guys aren't trained to talk to pathologists. They just assume we're sort of back there in the black box and don't want to
1: talk to anybody. And quite often, it's uh, that's unfortunate because we can be some help to these guys. on occasion. Give me an example of that. Give us an example of how you could be of help and how you oh, see all, that. You
2: no, know, all sorts of things. Uh, for example, they have. all uh, oh, just for example, they have an enzyme problem that they. The patient's clinically well, but the enzymes are, for, for example, uh, um, there, uh, there's an enzyme called gamma glutamyl transpeptidase that uh, can be elevated way out of proportion. Let's say the patient's clinically well, and uh, their GGT or their gamma glutamyl transpeptidase is markedly elevated. The patient's well. I mean, how could that be? Well, the patient had a drink about three days ago. Yeah. Well, that's what happens. GGT is markedly elevated after one or two drinks. And that's a lot of guys don't know that, and so they start, you know, doing liver biopsies and doing a very expensive liver workup uh, for this one isolated lab study when all they had to do is talk to us. We tell them, well, it's, it's just due
1: to this. Yeah. That, why, why did that happen? Why? Why did what happen? I'm sorry. Why, why did it happen that uh, we we stopped talking to pathologists? I know. Well, uh, part, some some pathologists are un- uncomfortable talking to clinicians too.
2: It's it's a it's a double sided street, but. I think it's partly training. Most uh, most clinicians um, had some, they, they had to go in their training process, like surgeons and internists had to spend some time in the laboratory uh, where we got a chance to work on them a little bit. <laughs> but um, you no, know, these days they don't do that. Like surgeons, for example, used to put in a, a month in anatomic pathology where you could show them frozen sections, how they're done and what they can what they can tell you, and what's more, even more important, what they can't tell you. Mm. And so uh, they have a much better idea of how these things are. But now they know the laboratory is basically a black box
1: to all these guys. That's okay. been one of
2: the problems.
1: We're going to uh, talk a little more about frozen sections in a moment. Uh, okay. But I wanted to uh, – one of the things that we like to do here uh, – is to give people that are trying to decide on careers things to do, and clearly medicine is one of them, and the specialties different specialties that we present pathology is another and like you said, uh, there are even specialties within pathology aren 't there oh yeah there's because everything um, you know the the whole
2: diagnosis process is going molecular now and there's going to be a that 's going to open up a whole new uh, Vista for all of us. Uh, you know, a lot of the diseases are going to be looked at at the molecular basis. Diabetes is being looked at a molecular basis, uh, atherosclerosis, uh, hypertension, all these things are going to have that we're actually going to be able to do, define molecular entities. We can study that we may be able to interrupt and actually do much better treatments than they, when we currently are cancer, especially there's, there's several, uh, there are several genetic uh, moieties in a lot of these tumor in several of these tumors now that we directly interact with and interfere with and buy the patient a lot of time and occasionally save their lives
1: yeah that's a great thing <laughs> we're hopefully going to see a lot more of that well, we uh, hope it's you know but again but, that's a double-edged sword because as the patients it seems uh, learn that we can do more then they go out and do more to uh, damage themselves sometimes, and hopefully we're going to change that today in our talk. You're, well, we you're... hope
2: not. We hope we can convince them maybe to damage themselves less.
1: Well, that's going to be your task today. <laughs> My task. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, tell us about a, just a general day for you. Just you know, briefly give us a day.
2: Well, um, a lot again. A lot of what I do is microscopy these days. Um, normally, what we'll do is about. Generally, about eight o'clock in the morning, will um, the technologist will, will finish cutting slides for us. Uh, uh, slides are produced by taking small pieces of tissue and running them through a series of graded alcohols, mounting them in xylene, and then putting them into paraffin wax. And then that paraffin wax is put flat, fashioned into a square block. It th- it's then cut very, very thin. The paraffin's then adhered to a glass slide, the paraffin's melded off, and then it's stained with a series of biologic dyes, uh, and then uh, a cover slip's put over it, and then we interpret these. It seems very far away from the patient, but we've been doing this almost 100 years, and we found it's been very valuable. Um, I wish I had some graphics so I could actually show you a little bit more about this, because I'm sure I'm, we're losing people in the in the process here, but basically it's the tissue gets embalmed it's cut very thin it's stained with dyes, and that's what I look at and I spend most of my day doing that and
1: that's how we make cancer diagnoses hmm. by by looking at these slides you now let's talk about that for a moment now uh, you know most people think of the pathologist when they when they're watching cSI the crime scene investigators hmm. and the coroner and they're trying to determine the uh, cause of death and the time of death and things like that but There are parts of aspects of what you do that are very relevant to a living person who might be on a surgical table under anesthesia in the very moment where a doctor, say, for example, might take a tissue from the breast of a man or woman, and they're trying to decide how extensive they should go into their surgical procedure or what to do. So they take a piece of tissue and they run it to the laboratory while you're sitting by and then what happens
2: Well what they're doing it's uh, you're referring to frozen sections and um normally the the purpose for a frozen section is to spare the patient a second anesthesia in other words if uh, if the surgeon say opens the patient up and finds something unexpected uh like say example he's doing a laparotomy and he's and he finds the patient's full of tumor or, or full of something and he can't identify and doesn't have much experience with that. What they'll do is they'll take a small piece, they bring it to us <clears throat> and we uh, will put that into a cryostat. A cryostat is a, is a refrigerated cabinet usually at about minus 30 degrees and it has a small microtome on it. And a microtome is a machine that cuts tissue. It can cut tissue very thin. We'll actually freeze that piece of tissue in an ice block. And the reason we do that is because it'll hold it together so we can make a section, a very thin section, not unlike the one I previously described. The, the advantage to this is that we can do it very quickly, like five minutes, we can give them an idea of what's going on. The disadvantage is it's not, very, it's, it's not as high quality. In fact, the quality is much, much worse. But you know, with that being said, um, quite often uh, we can at least make a diagnosis of cancer for them. If they're deciding, mm-hmm. well, you know, if they open them up and they say, well, gee, we want to know if this is cancer or not, so we can decide where to go from here. Most of the time, uh, we can tell them, you know, we can at least tell them if it's a malignant.
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
2: the more subtle things, this is a lymphoma, an adenocarcinoma, the other subtypes that would make a huge difference from treatment standpoint, we may not be able to do on the frozen section, but at least can tell them it's malignant. Example is a is a brain tumor where the surgeon needs to know, is this a metastatic lesion or is it a primary brain lesion? That is relatively, well, most of the time, uh, is relatively simple to do by a frozen section. It does make a difference to those guys. If, they, if it's a primary, uh, a primary brain tumor, they're going to try to resect that much more aggressively. In other words, they're going to try to get all of that out if they can, um, you know, within reason. Uh, if it's a metastatic lesion, they'll back off
1: because obviously the patient already is uh, is beyond uh, you know complete resection. Now, yeah, metastatic for our viewers means it comes from another place other than primarily in the brain. And the other thing that I wanted to say was when you use the word laparoscopy, that's usually uh, uh, an abdominal surgery where an incision is made into the abdomen. The whole abdominal cavity is explored. Um yeah. So. W- When, when you have something under normal circumstances where you're just looking at lots of tissue that nobody's on the table, some of the times you may look at something and it's extremely obvious to you, you know, this is this, what happens and what do you do and what do other pathologists around the country do when they come up with something that they're not quite sure of, that it looks like it could be this, or it's something they may not have seen. Something with a question involved. Oh, we do it all the time.
2: <laughs> uh, I'd say probably about 10% of our cases we show to our colleagues, just, low, just you know, the other guys in the office, just to get their two bits on it. And quite often, well, most of the time we can resolve it that way. Uh, somebody's seen it before uh, most of the time. Now, in cases where it's going to make a big difference, like, a, like a cancer in situ, in other words, cancer that really hasn't invaded yet, but it's cancer, you know. They perhaps need to get a little bit more aggressive on that, but we're not really sure if it's just how malignant it is. And and then some of that can be very, very subtle. We'll generally send that out to a recognized expert. And most of us over the years through our training or through the literature we've read have a sort of a cadre of people that have seen a lot more of these cases than we have. And so we try to exploit them as best we can. And uh, Jerry, they're a real help. And The clinicians have gotten used, uh, you know, our clinical colleagues have gotten used to that over the years. They're willing to wait, especially if we tell them we're not exactly sure. Most of them are, you know, sufficiently kind to let us wait till we can get a second opinion on these things. They're just used to that these days. And so it takes a little bit of pressure off us. And we get a much more accurate diagnosis that way. Patient's just a lot better served.
0: So, so Mike, wow, this is like so fascinating to me that there's this whole segment that we don't even see.
2: (laughs) Well, there's there's a lot going on in the background.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. And, and so, I mean, for example, if, um, if here you just described, if someone's in the middle of surgery and they're sending this piece of organ or, or sample down to you, you can freeze it, you can slice it, you can have a look at it. Um, and then the other form would be to take a little longer and do it with all the paraffins that you were talking about. Is that correct?
2: Yes, that's, that's, ac- that's exactly what happens. Nor- normally, we look at these frozen sections as almost an emergency procedure. Mm. Um, for example, what we currently do is there's a, it was what we call sentinel node biopsies. And um, say if a patient is a known cancer of the breast, they will go in and they will use radioactive tracers to find what they call a sentinel lymph node and that's based on the theory that a cancer when it's draining you know when when cancer's drain to lymph nodes and that's what that's normally the way breast cancer spreads mm-hmm. it'll go to a to one node first and then it goes to more of them down the line so in other words it's a, it's a sequential thing if the surgeon no, normally surgeons don't like to do a complete axillary lymph node dissection because it ends up the arm swells and There's a whole series of problems. If they can show or we can show that the sentinel lymph node is negative, they'll spare the patient that big dissection. So it's still a useful thing to do. We will freeze that lymph node. If it's negative, they'll back off and not do anything, uh, anything more to the patient. Mm -hmm. We found over the years that actually probably is an appropriate thing to do because a, a big removing all the lymph nodes in the axilla has its own associated medical problems. And we'd like to avoid that if we can. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's one way we can be helpful.
0: And, and, okay, so what I'm hearing is there's a lot of diagnosis on cancer. What else do you diagnose?
2: Oh, well, anything. I mean, we can, uh, you know, using a microscope, you can make, you know, we've shown over the years that most human diseases are expressed at the microscopic or the molecular level. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, as we learn more and more, we're finding we can actually predict. Um, you know, we can actually screen patients genetically, and that's part of this whole genome process here. We can actually predict whether a patient's going to develop a disease down the line, like say ten years later, twenty mm-hmm. years later. That's got its own ethical problems too. <laughs> uh, it's a nice. It's going to be a nice tool, and uh, if we use it intelligently and with a certain amount of You know, humanity, I think it could be a a wonderful thing, Mm -hmm. but I'm just afraid insurance companies are basically going to use it as a tool to make more money by denying patients' coverage.
0: Right. That's
2: a big fright right now because, you know, I mean, you see these movies all the time where people are genetically screened and then they're basically cast out into the wilderness. (laughs) (laughs) We'd like that not to happen if we could help it.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes.
1: Uh, It's hard for me to believe, though, that the insurance companies would do something like that. Believe, <laughs> <laughs> ah, believe. <yes. laughs> me. this
0: is. Remember, this is a magical medical
1: tour. Every time they do a blood spot, you can match your DNA forever.
0: Can you repeat that for us, uh, Mike? Because I think we you kind of broke up a little bit there.
2: Okay. Every time they do a blood spot on a little baby for general and all these other...
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, we, you know,
1: we, we have, they we have a robot system.
0: pathologist right now <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: he is a hologram
0: uh, he is a holograph. <laughs> yes
1: am I, am, are you guys losing me here
0: uh no we were just cutting in and out that made you sound like a robot and and oh, glenn okay. said oh he is a holograph
2: <laughs> <laughs> i did i told you that at the beginning <laughs> Anyhow, we, we we hope that it'll be handled at uh, a little bit more advanced than you know than some of us fear, but uh, we'll mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it's they're great tools, and I think we'll be able to do a lot
1: for patients, at least on the diagnostic side. Yes. Well, yes. give us some give us some other examples, as Christina asked, of things that you diagnose for.
2: Okay. Well, an example: uh, somebody comes in with a rash. <laughs>
1: who who knows what that
2: that could be? A billion different things. Quite often. We can help to sort out uh, what what's causing the rash if they do a biopsy of the skin um, kidney biopsies patient has oh spilling protein in the urine we can often tell them what what kind of disease it is is it diabetes is it a genetic abnormality that's causing uh, basic membrane problems uh, liver biopsies we do all the time it's uh, is it a is it cirrhosis due to alcohol is it uh, uh, you know iron overload uh, we're
1: you know, thousands of things we can tell people that don't have anything to do with cancer. Are you, uh, you know, some of the radiologists now are getting involved in uh, some actual patient care where they're going in and, and doing uh, pain procedures or they're they're actually working with the patient themselves. Do you ever have the opportunity to work with a patient? Well, we do biopsies
2: occasionally, but some some pathologists actively do bone marrow biopsies. We're we actually going and um, normally actually do the biopsies, but usually we're kind of in take the biopsy and out. And usually it's not very not a very pleasant experience. So most patients don't really get a very good idea. <laughs> you know, you tell a patient a bone marrow biopsy, and they're all well. Do we really need that? You know, mm-hmm. because they do hurt, and it's uh, you know generally now the hematol we encourage the hematologists to do that because they're the uh, they're the patient's primary doc and they know them. It's if you have some guy, you know, coming in a white coat you've never seen before,
1: it's pretty terrifying. So speaking about um, humanity now and things like that, uh, sometimes you're the very first person that really knows that someone has a cancer. And you know that when you tell the surgeon or the or the doctor, the primary care doctor, uh, you know that that's going to change their lives. What it? How do you prepare yourself for that? How do you deal with that? What does it mean to you? Well, you know, after you've done it for 40 years, the the
2: impact isn't that big. Which what you really see you gotta remember, the most important thing that you can give the patient are facts. Okay. <laughs> you gotta give them facts, you gotta give them the truth. And mm-hmm. pathology gives them pretty much the facts. And that's that's the most important thing you can do for a patient anyway, in my opinion. You gotta give them you gotta tell them what's going on. You know, and pathology does that more than anybody else. We tell them chemically that they have a serum sodium of 150, not 149, not 151, 150. You know, we tell them that that lump that they had is cancer, or better yet, it's not cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, but we give them facts. And that, in, in medicine, as you well know, uh, facts are rare and wonderful things. A lot of it's art, speculation, shadows. Mm-hmm. Remember, radiologists don't make any diagnoses. <laughs> uh, yeah. They just show you that there's a shadow. We, we make the diagnosis.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Not not to, not to beat up my radiologic colleagues,
1: but no, maybe some, we'll have a uh, a panel one day with a radiologist and a pathologist and
2: Well, you know there's actually been some some thinking about whether they ought to do a combined residency and train these guys not only in doing radiology but also pathology, but the amount of data you'd have to have would probably take you ten years to learn how to do both and
1: who wants to spend ten years. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Although it seems like most of us spend our entire lives in medicine once we're in it, continuing taking courses and getting new degrees and more specializations. I know you've thought about some major specializations over the years that were offered to you and have and have done a number of them, haven't you? Yeah, well, quite a few. <laughs> tell us, yeah, tell no, us some of the ones you've done.
2: Well, the American Board of Pathology is our primary certification. And that normally, traditionally, was you you could take anatomic pathology, which was the microscope side of this. You could take clinical pathology, which was the laboratory side of it. Normally, we took both. We took a, each, each one had two years of training. Most guys would take both because it was difficult to find a job if you only had half of that. If you had anatomic pathology and clinical pathology, you could run a lab and do frozen sections and all the other stuff we previously described, and hence you would be a lot more attractive for a job. That's kind of changed since laboratories have changed a bit, and so now they're really looking for subspecialties in anatomic pathology, particularly hematopathology, looking for lymphomas, uh, dermatopathology, uh, specializing in skin, uh, kidney pathologies in some centers, neuropathology in some centers, which is the study of brain tumors. So it's kind of um, emphasis is being placed on subspecialties of uh, of anatomic pathology. Now, on the clinical side, you can do <clears throat> excuse me, you can do subspecialties in that, like blood, blood banking or microbiology. But the the job market's pretty scarce for those. Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> what uh, when you go through your day and you've gone through your career. What are the things that bring joy to you? What are the things that bring frustration? What are the things that bring sadness, if any of those?
2: Oh, I love being right. That's that brings you the joy.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's good. Yeah, well, you know, I mean then the problem in, in a way it's good because you're kind of the final diagnosis in a lot of these things. You know, um in a way it's very frustrating to the other guys because they've formulated this huge house of cards and you come along and pull out the bottom card, and all of a sudden their their uh, their diagnosis they work so hard to formulate isn't right. <laughs> they really get that really gets them mad. What what gets I, you? <laughs> and I know you love that. Oh, I do. It's you know there's there's a certain amount of uh, oh I don't know <sighs> a certain amount of revenge in that. I guess I don't know. That um, the frustrating thing is that uh, you know with with the way uh medical care is going financially i'm afraid we're just not going to have uh the finances do a lot of these to develop a lot of these tests which we could you know it's just not going to the, the money won't be there
1: hmm.
0: so what i don't understand is is if if i'm able to give you a piece of blood work or a piece of whatever to diagnose and come right down bottom lining it right why isn't it done more directly? <laughs> isn't it cost effective?
2: I'm, I'm sorry. Not, not done more directly. You, you lost me there.
0: Like, for example, I mean, if if there was something going on in my body and, and they really couldn't figure it out just from the basic x-rays and blood work, right, uh, wouldn't it be well, easier to because, go straight to you?
2: Well, uh, because it's real complex, um, you know... Uh, when somebody comes in with, abdom- with, with abdominal pain, for example, mm. it can be anything from a ruptured aneurysm to an appendicitis.
0: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm.
2: so there's, you know, there there's a lot that has to go on in the diagnostic process. The lab and X-rays are just part of that, mm. big part, but they're just part of that. You know, there's there's a lot more. There's a good physical exam. There's a history. There's uh, many, many different uh, moieties have to go together to formulate a firm diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Did that answer the question? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it's complex. People people are very complex things, and quite often, uh, you know, their my my abdominal pain is excruciating. Well, is it really? I mean, the problem is that people people perceive things differently. Right. You know, uh, somebody will come in and say they're in the worst, you know, the, the worst pain they've ever experienced, or they really haven't. Or somebody comes in and says, "Yeah, I have, remember this in the special forces." Sergeant came in one day and said, "Oh doc, I got this little bit of pain. a horse stepped on my hand like well, broken like half the bones <laughs> in his hand you know? <laughs> yeah, I think you've probably got a problem here, Sarge. We better kind of fix this hand for you
0: <laughs> and people are
2: very stoic
0: yeah
2: uh, and they'll come in and they'll you know you can't believe they're <laughs> that they're having such little pain yeah. um, that's the way they are people are pe- people perceive pain and symptoms very differently.
1: Mm-hmm. What did what did you do in the military? I was a pathologist. You're a pathologist? <laughs> oh you yeah, sure.
2: Out. Oh, that's where I trained.
1: Trained to work out in the field were you or were you? Oh
2: yeah, well actually I wasn't. They generally don't need as much out in the field. They're they'll we're usually in small, you know, I, I was actually worked in a 200-bed hospital uh, in Fort Carson, Colorado for a good part of my military career. Mm-hmm. You know, just doing the same thing I do in civilian life.
1: Mm-hmm. Just have a good time. <laughs> you know. I, want, I wanted to ask you, uh, when I was in my medical school training and residency programs and everything, there were certain things. We always had to learn things, but we didn't always see everything that we learned about. You know, Obviously, some of the third world infectious diseases we had to learn about, but we never really saw cases of loa loa. Uh, you know, or berry, berry at, at times like that, but we still had to learn them because it's traditionally in medicine. But in my last few years, I've seen a number of people that had, for example, pancreatic cancer more recently in the past few years than I've, than I ever saw in almost my entire training and, and career. And what I wanted to ask you is as a pathologist, And you've been doing this for a while. Do you see any trends in things that are happening to people? And if you do, can they be related to anything that's going on, say in our environment or in our food, anything like that? Sure. Lung cancer.
2: (laughs) That's going up like crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, women are having women. Women just didn't didn't used to get lung cancer and they started smoking and they all get lung cancer now. I mean, you know, I, I know what you're, you know, I mean, that's the big one, buddy. You know, that's,
0: Oh, we lost him. Oh, lung cancer. Oh, oh, that's
1: the big one.
0: That's the big one. I thought it was going to be breast cancer. <laughs> a of, yeah.
2: A lot of people don't oh. realize that uh, it also uh, you have a higher incidence of breast cancer. You oh, have Mike, wait, wait,
0: hang on just a sec, Mike, because you just uh, your your screen had frozen and you had frozen just when you were about to say lung cancer being the big one.
2: Are you with me now, or we're,
0: you we're, yeah, we're with you now. So if you can start okay. that part again, well, the,
2: the the big one I think is that uh, you know is, is lung is, is tobacco smoke. Mm. Tobacco smoke causes many different kinds of cancer, particularly kidney, bladder, um, lung. Uh, there's probably a higher there's a supposedly a higher incidence of breast cancer. There's a slightly higher incidence of endometrial cancer. It's it's mm. it's just a it's just a garden of earthly delights, and mm. the federal government subsidizes tobacco farmers. What is this? You know, I mean that that just as example, that's the first one. I know that you know everybody wants to say, well, you know, there's pesticides in the food and all that. Maybe they do, maybe they have a small uh, contribution, but it's nothing.
0: No, oh, we froze again. Nothing like tobacco smoke. Oh, nothing. <laughs> oh okay, nothing like <laughs>
2: nothing like. To- See, the tobacco companies are trying to interfere with us. They're trying to interfere with the message.
0: Mm.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing like tobacco smoke and secondhand. I used to poo-poo secondhand smoke, and I've I become a believer.
0: Now, now, <laughs> so, is it is it just on tobacco? What about people who like smoke marijuana and things like that?
2: Well, that's such a minor contribution. I mean, quite often, as you know, uh, marijuana smokers are also smokers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, it's kind of hard to separate them out, but. You know, I mean, the, the one that really, you know, the huge gorilla in the, in, you know, the gorilla in the living room is, is tobacco smoke. You know, and then the feds really need to, you know, I mean, if they're going to get serious about this, they've got to declare that a dangerous drug. Mm-hmm. That's it. I mean, that's, that kills more people than
1: anything. Mm-hmm. You know? Why do you think that, why do you think that we don't know as a public that tobacco, I mean, we all know about the lungs and tobacco. So everybody pretty much knows that right now, but why don't we know that it can cause problems with the kidney mm-hmm. and a number of the other organs that you mentioned?
2: Why so don't would, we know that? Well, the tobacco companies aren't going to advertise that. They don't want to tell you how dangerous this stuff is. So they, they squelch a lot of this, mm-hmm. you know, these, these are well-known things, but you know, who's going to listen to the doctors anymore? You know, they'll, they'll just put out, you know, they'll just, put out something on television and, uh, you know, and just drag a red herring across the road. I, you know, it's the problem is that, you know, I'm sure there are wonderful people that work for tobacco companies, but they're inherently evil. They know that this stuff causes cancer and they're just actually, they're trying to make it even more addictive and they, and they target kids, you know, and the the whole nine yards. And it's just, you know, my opinion is just wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, and the feds just buy into it. That's, that's my message.
0: Now is there a, I mean, they say that there's a difference between the regular tobacco, <clears throat> like pure tobacco, as opposed to the tobacco that has been processed with all these other chemicals. I mean, uh, do you know if there's a well, difference? Well, tobacco is
2: tobacco. It has anthrac- it, it You know, tobacco smoke has all sorts, mostly things like anthracene, small carbon fragments. Uh, they're, the heat paralyzes the respiratory cilia, so they can't move the... Uh, so they can't move the mucus up and clear the lungs um there's a whole series of disastrous consequences to the lungs that predispose to cancer not just the uh, the direct action of the uh, of the carcinogens
0: isn't that interesting that that it's going up when our society seems seems to be smoking less
2: i don't know i mean As that, compared
0: to the 70s you know 70s and 80s wherever
2: <laughs> well maybe talking out of school i don't <clears throat> You know, I'm. I'm uh, I do know that the that lung cancer in women is going up in mm. fairly alarming rate. That much I know. But you know, you would think it's mostly due to smoking. But uh, who knows? Mm. I would think you know they're they're kind of causally affected. I mean, I'm sure the tobacco companies are going to poo-poo that. But you know, it's still
1: nevertheless, it's true. Mm. So then, when people start hearing about, and I want to stay on smoking for a while because I think there is a little bit of a message here and you're bringing it to us as the person who sees the final uh, parts of what a body looks like. And maybe you you could even, too bad we didn't have a photo of what a... Oh, don't worry, the, Glenn. I can bring you a whole bunch of photos. <laughs> I, know, I know you can. It would be great to look That's at that That's part now.
0: two. <laughs> part two.
1: Is there anything aside from things that we can avoid that you think we should be taking. Lots of people take supplements and vitamins and I don't know how you can correlate that, but do you have any feelings about whether or not people to take supplements and vitamins or eat healthy and eat organic or not organic? Are those things that we're all trying to do to be better? Uh things that actually are helping from your point of view? Well they're probably I mean no no doctor's ever gonna say don't you know don't get fresh
2: air and eat vegetables and I suppose, you know, I mean, nobody's going to say that, you know. Oh, I think you, know, you would. How much Is it going to prevent cancer? Probably not. I mean, is it a good thing to do for yourself? Absolutely, sure. I mean, it's, you know, getting exercise and, you know, getting proper sleep. And I suppose some vitamin supplements are not a bad idea. And certainly some people, you know, tend to, you know, need more vitamins than others. Uh, you know, probably as, you, as the elderly possibly need a bit more, things like that. But... Is that actually going to do anything to prevent cancer? And, and alas, probably not. You know, otherwise the the same, you know, the folks that you know do all these wonderful things for themselves uh, wouldn't get any cancer, and they they do. So I, you know, does this really help? You know, one of the problems is that we're we're probably going to find that a lot of cancers are uh, due to genetic mutations that are so interact are so. Uh, you know, tightly interlaced to the same biochemical reactions that promote wound healing and things like that, that we have to have, it's going to be hard to tease them out and Mm -hmm. treat them. I mean, for example, right now, you know, if you treat a cancer like a leukemia, you have to give them drugs that wipe out the whole immune system. Well, whoopee, you know, (laughs) so die of an infection, you know? So right now we really don't have good drugs that can sort these out. And uh, it's, you know, we're still in the process We've had some real triumphs. There there are several, uh, Gleevec and uh, in chronic
1: myelogenous leukemia is curable. You give somebody a pill and their leukemia goes away. That's pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah, you it's know? very uh, cool. In fact, we interviewed uh, Lon Winston, uh, who had a hairy cell leukemia. Yeah. And uh, as you said before, the molecular uh, knowledge that's coming out right now, we can laser beam target certain parts of a cell and not injure uh, you know, other cells locally around it that are healthy. So sure. these are good things. What are some of the other good things that are happening that you see?
2: Oh, I mean, as far as, uh,
1: well, uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia in kids is curable. Uh, mm-hmm.
2: 60% of them. That's uh, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, Lance, uh, and, yeah, Lance Armstrong is a, is a classic case of this. He had a seminoma, metastatic to the brain. When I was training, that was a death sentence. He's doing mm-hmm. fine. thank you. They gave him cisplatin and a couple other uh new drugs and he's doing okay. So they saved mm-hmm. his life, you know. Uh choriocarcinoma in, in women uh, say they get a choriocarcinoma from a bad pregnancy, it goes to the lung. They used to die from that routinely. Mm-hmm. They don't anymore. So I mean there there have been some triumphs. It's uh you know, they've they've done some remarkable work, but you know, if,
1: alas for a lot of the things like breast cancer and colon cancer we're still it's still fairly disappointing but you know we're also we're also mentioning a lot of cancer but some of the things we spoke about a few minutes ago in terms of diet eating well and exercising and good breathing there are other diseases out there There's oh sure of- yeah
2: i'm i was just thinking of that oh diabetes i mean you, you know that's adult type 2 diabetes is associated with body weight you get i mean you know i'm <clears throat>
1: you get somebody to lose 10 pounds and their proteinuria goes away. You know? yes. <laughs> yeah. Also yeah, there's mean, in certain people, uh, sleep apnea sometimes goes away with a 10 pound sure. weight reduction. Sure. Yeah. I
0: can't afford that Glenn. <laughs> <The
2: 10. laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's amazing how just a little bit of weight loss sometimes can correct a lot of, a lot of diet or a lot of metabolic problems. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, the body doesn't like the body does not like you weighing 350 pounds. It just doesn't. It's not happy. Mm-hmm. You know, the more you can lose and um the more you can lose the better. I mean, obviously you don't want to be anorectic. I mean there there's a limit to that, but uh we could all stand and lose a few pounds here and there. <laughs> no, then that definitely helps. That helps certainly diabetes. Um other things, uh the liver doesn't like a lot of fat dumped on it either, and that's a condition called steatosis. Sometimes that can lead to a, a scarring of the liver, cirrhosis. Um, mm. You know, and that can, you know, that's that's something that's best avoided too. But yeah, exactly. Dietary, you know, losing a little bit of weight, not having a high fat diet, sure that can that can prevent a lot of uh, a lot of chronic disease. Mm.
1: Do you see anything in our foods and the processed foods? We all talk about not eating processed foods. Do you see anything in the, in the processed foods that are causing harm that if we don't eat them, we're okay. Is the food industry like the cigarette industry?: Oh, I don't know. You know that, that's a tough area, and that's
2: out of my realm of expertise. I do know that monosodium glutamate is supposedly cancer protective,
0: so <laughs> cancer protective, really. Yeah, Because because way back, I think about 20, 25 years ago, they were saying that it was the, it was what caused cancer in in China and everything.
2: MSG supposedly ties up some free radicals. And so they were thinking that maybe that helped, but, uh, so the problem, the bottom line is we really don't have a good handle on those things right now. I mean, it's, you know, I I think, you know, Monsanto dumping, you know, Roundup into everybody's, uh, you know, soybeans probably is not a good thing, but. (laughs) How much does it actually translate into ri- disease of risk? I mean, risk of disease in, in the average person—it's hard to say. You know, the body a, takes care
1: of a lot of that.
2: Well, it does. You know, we're remember we're we're designed to handle, you know, rot meat and bad vegetables, <laughs> all sorts <laughs> of nasty stuff. And uh, we've got we've got some really nice. Uh, you know, uh, we've got a lot of protective mechanisms that protect us every day from things like this—the the so-called wisdom of the body. Mm-hmm. So we we have a lot of ways to get rid of a lot of these things, and particularly viruses. Boy, we've got lots of ways to get rid of viruses. You know, it's uh, the, we have a lot of fairly sophisticated ways to protect ourselves. Uh, we'd like to enhance those sometimes, um, but then again, some of the things we, some of the immune. Um, some of the things we use to protect ourselves, like the immune system, can turn around and get us, too. Lupus is an example. So,
1: you know, everything's a double-edged sword. Mm. Everything has a yin and a yang to it. Right, boy, it does for sure. Mm. You, know. you know, we just did a, uh, a very special episode uh, on health tips that all of the interviews, uh, each person that we interviewed gave us a special health tip, and we compiled them in uh, 2012, and we recommend that everybody uh, listen to that. But uh, now we're starting in 2013, and uh, I want you to have the, the uh, opening uh, shot at giving us the first health tip. <laughs> the first health tip. <laughs> 2013. You're in the pole position.
2: I'm in the pole position. That's great. Well, I'll have to think of something here either, I to say. Uh, take the cancer. Take the lump in your breast and the spotting of your and your vaginal spotting seriously. Mm-hmm. It ain't going to go away, okay Take cancer seriously. don't sweep it under the carpet because it ain't going to get any better and you know if you have a if you have a breast lump or if you have vaginal spotting or they see a a spot on your lung during a routine x-ray, take it seriously. It ain't going to go away most likely. You know. That's one thing I can tell everybody. We see these things all the time where people just sort of hope and pray that it's gonna go away and it ain't. You know. Take care of take care of it.
0: What are the first signs of lung lung cancer?
2: Well, unfortunately sometimes (laughs) sometimes it's just you know, you see it on an x ray for routine for other routine things, like you know, you you know who knows, they, you know, they seem to x-ray chest for everybody, for everything, Any, you know, these days. One mm-hmm. uh, of the first things you normally have, well, you normally get sick. I mean, you lose weight, you get night sweats. Uh, by the time you're coughing up blood, it's pretty advanced. So, you know, usually they're found as a, as a, as a uh, uh, law or as, as a spot for something else they're looking at, maybe cardiac shad, the side of the heart or something like that. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Michael, I think your health tip is actually uh really great, although you focused it on kind of cancer as a process, I think it really uh expands into knowing about your body, taking care of it, being aware of it, and if there is something wrong that you should uh do something about it yeah take it seriously i you know, since
2: I see most, most of the disasters I get exposed to are cancers that were neglected. And those are the ones that always come to front when I'm asked a question like this, what can you do? Well, take your body seriously. I mean, it'll give you war. It'll give you warning signs. And quite often they're early enough that you can actually do something about it. Weight loss, unexplained, uh, night sweats, um, you know, a breast lump, certainly because, you know, one out of eight, probably eight women are going to get breast cancer sometime in their life and uh, quite often these are things they pick up in the shower you know just don't wish they're going to go away you know have somebody look at it and if you're still uncomfortable with what they tell you go see somebody else i mean I how many times have we seen somebody that saw some saw a practitioner that blew it off and it was something they shouldn't have blown off
1: so you know, that brings that brings up another question for me uh, in terms of treatments for things there are many treatments that that are on the market for different things we have surgical procedures we have radiations uh, we now have uh, hormone type therapies uh, a number of different things do you have for example take prostate cancer you know right now we talk about a radical prostatectomy or uh, a da Vinci surgery versus a radiation versus a proton therapy versus seeds. Do you as a pathologist see the end results after you made the initial diagnosis of prostate cancer down the line? Can you say anything about this is a good procedure, that's a better procedure, or they're all the same? Or depends on we- the
2: stage. You know, it really depends on the stage, Glenn. If they're for example, if somebody's got metastatic prostate cancer, doing a radical prostatectomy is not going to do much for them. You know that's pretty straightforward. Right. Uh, as far as radiation for a low grade, you know, um, if you listen to the Swedes, they say, "Gee, if the guy's seventy and he's got a low grade cancer, even though we know it's a cancer, watch him. He's probably going to do fine." <laughs> so right. They found now that some of this so-called watchful waiting actually uh, really doesn't, you know, doesn't put the patient at higher risk. Uh, so. You know, it really depends on the stage, the patient's age, their state of health. Um, you know, you really can't make a blanket pronouncement. Each procedure has its merits and its disadvantages. You know, and uh, that's that's really something that if the patient's really concerned about that, that that's really where they need to talk to the oncologists. That's what they do; they mm-hmm. they give them the relative risks, and that, you know, that's that's really what I direct them to as a as a practicing oncologist.
1: Excellent. Listen, Michael. Uh, We've been talking a lot about the beginnings of your career, what you do, and some diseases. Is there anything that you have thought about that, uh, when you knew you were going to give this talk, that you wanted to speak about that we haven't uh, approached as of yet?
2: Not really. I think you've been pretty thorough, Glenn. It's uh, you know, hopefully I'll be invited back sometime and we can digress
1: on other things. <laughs> well, this time we'll we will definitely invite you back, but we're going to want pictures and photos and all sorts of things to oh, really right. make an impression on people. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Christina, any thoughts?
0: Oh, no. This has been really fascinating for me. And now I really appreciate what goes on in the back room, in the dark room.
2: In the dark room. In
0: the, room. In the dungeons well, of the <laughs> hospital.
2: <laughs> well, hopefully, as people see this, maybe they'll come up with more specific questions because they got a general talk like this you know, you kind of throw out the whole net and you see what, see what comes in, but mm-hmm. you know, there, there's more specific questions. We can give them a little better, a little bit better idea what's going on.
1: Yeah. And I think that's uh, some of our future shows. We may pick one topic and really get into it from, from taking a person, uh, say for example, a lung cancer, take someone who has genetics and we could look at x-rays of what a normal lung looks like and pathology of a normal lung, and then watch it as it progresses. And, things like that and they'll be able to see that and maybe that'll have more of an influence than the surgeon general's warning on the side of the uh mm. cigarette uh package.
2: Yeah. Well, we'd like to, I mean, uh, th- I would hope so. And I've, obviously we've got obviously I've got my own particular you know uh thoughts on that, but uh you know it's that's just one opinion. Mm. Give us one. One one opinion? One opinion. One opinion, don't smoke. <laughs> 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 but you That's know, for somebody who never smoked,
0: it uh, was really interesting because I remember when uh, going to school in Canada. I remember in, in I think it was the like grade six or seven. Uh, someone did come in with a, a, a slat, like a glass case, and it was split in the middle. And on one side was a, a piece of lung that of a smoker, and on the other side was a very clean, clear lung that of a non-smoker, and it was. It was so gross that <laughs> <It is gross. laughs> I, I because it was like you, you couldn't believe one was so creamy and milky and then the other side was like dark and you know the shades of gray in it, I think it really turned us off as kids. And wow. you know, they were just trying to help us understand don't smoke. <laughs> this is yeah. what happens, you know. And not only do you die young. <laughs> But no, this is what you look too. like from the inside, you
2: know. Yeah, thought, and that's and that's good. I think I think that's a, I think you do a service to these people. But I've, uh, you know, unfortunately, it hasn't seen. You know, and I, I'm no expert on uh, the you know the incidence of smoking among kids, but
1: it is kind of disquieting to see they're targeting children now. Mm. Mm. I wonder if it would be a good idea to have uh, kids at a certain age march through a pathology lab. Oh, they do it
2: all the time. We have we have uh, young volunteers from the hospital come through all the time, and normally my boss uh, is sort of takes over those things and shows them some of the things we, you know, some of the basically the sort of the rogues gallery of basic tumors we have there, and you know, just to show a little bit about what we do and what we what we have to face. Mm -hmm. So Uh yeah, they they get the kids get a chance to you know see dog and pony shows on occasion.
1: Well, I'm extremely grateful to our special guest, Dr. Michael Richardson, our pathologist in uh, standing for his <laughs> willingness to <laughs> share his wisdom and expertise with all of us. I it's would also... Pleasure. What's that? It's been my pleasure. Ah, oh, thank ours. you. It's been a pleasure for us too. I also want to thank all of my teachers and all of my healers uh, to help me go through my journey. And I look forward to getting together again on the Magic Tour with uh, Christina next week when we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until then, I would like to say thank you, Michael. We really appreciated this. And uh, I wish everyone optimal health.
0: Yes. And thank you so much, uh, our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman and Michael Richardson for such a fascinating moment into what you do and your expertise. uh, I'm fascinated. (laughs) And of course, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us and supporting this new platform of education information. We are grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing from you on how we can support you better. We're excited to announce that you can now access the show, Magical Medical Tour, through iTunes. And uh, I do believe that directly on the site, there is a button that you can press that will link you directly there so that you can download the show. We invite you to join us live every Tuesday at ten thirty a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1.30 Eastern Time, for Magical Medical Tour. Wednesdays for Trinity of Life at eleven a.m. Pacific Standard Time, two p.m. Eastern Time. Followed every other week by our show, Flowing Into Awareness with Anatara. You can also find uh, our medical guide, Doctor Glenn Woolman, at myyogahub.com/gwoolman, and follow him on Twitter at Glenn Woolman. And of course, through his own website, glennwoolman.com, where I do recommend uh, for you to learn about his metaphor square breath. Thank you for joining us. And once again, until we meet again, namaste.